It is so good to see each and every one of you. So let's all find our seats and we'll get ready to get started. It's good to gather with family members, people that you see truly as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, what a blessing the Christian family really is. Amen? Amen. Well, today we're in part two of our sermon series, Sexual Immorality. And I told you last week that each year I try to take at least two or three Sundays to talk about immorality, sexual immorality, in a broad sense, in a narrow sense. I just think it's invaluable that we have teaching of God's full word, his, his entire reality of heart and message and what is God's call to our lives. You see, the reality really does come down to of us always asking the best basic question, what is it that God wants from me? What is it in my life that will please God? Now, we can do all kinds of things that please God, but those things don't save us. The only thing that saves us is by putting our trust, our faith, our hope in Jesus Christ by making Him our Lord and Savior, receiving what He has finished through the cross that He died on to offer forgiveness to all who accept Him. However, as we saw last week out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, we are in encouraged by Paul to find out what pleases the Lord. There are things in this life, there are actions that please the Lord. There are steps of obedience. When we trust, have faith in the Lord, we walk in the light of His love. There is a faith walk. There is an obedience. There is a changed life. And in fact, as we talked last week, the whole word repent, as John the Baptist was proclaiming to the community in the wilderness, is a word that means to turn away from a lifestyle or actions that you are currently in because they are not honoring God. They are not what God has called you to. And out of that, we said, we all need to reset in terms of immoralities or sexual immoralities. And that was defined as what? Adultery? You don't have intimate relationships with anyone other than your spouse. That is, in, in God's big picture, the beauty of a husband and wife coming together. There is a, a beauty, a blessing in marriage and sexual intimate relationships is one of the blessings. But that is for a husband and a wife only. And anything that it takes place outside of that is adultery. If you are having those relationships with someone other than your spouse. And then there was the word fornication. The word fornication simply means 
having relationships of an intimate nature when you're not married. If you're not married, it is God's will that you abstain from sexual relationships until you marry the wife or the husband that you commit your life to in a covenant of marriage. That's God's will. And then we talked about homosexuality. And that is illicit sexual relationships with someone of the same sex. And then the word that we saw had a fourth meaning regarding bestiality. And I don't have to explain that. But what happens is you begin to see the the downward spiral of a person's mind and way of thinking whenever God's Word no longer has an importance to them. You see, whenever Ben read Romans 12:1, therefore, offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God, what Paul was saying in that text of Romans is there is a way to use the body. And that body is to be offered to God as a spiritual sacrifice that you come before God, body, yes, soul and spirit, and you lay it on His altar to please Him. Powerful verse. Well, Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 1 through 8. You're not meant to live an impure life. You are called to live a set-apart, a sanctified life. In fact, he says, it is God's will that you live a sanctified life. And sanctified is to be set apart. The church is the ecclesia, the called out. Just like The Jewish nation was the apple of God's eye and the chosen people given and entrusted with the words of God to communicate them in humble boldness to the world around them. And lastly, last week, we looked at the figure of John the Baptist. And we saw that in the world that he lived in, He called out the religious organizations and leaders who were abusing those truths of God in an unholy way when he says to them, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath of God? This is what you need to be doing. This is what you need to be doing, but you're not. And don't think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. You know, it's it's a very sobering text that we dealt with last week. And today's text is a very heavy text as well. But John the Baptist loved what God said so much. And God tells us that he sent John. And there he was, this wild man in the wilderness, speaking God's word 
with no regard for his own life. Just what does God want from me? What has he called me to do? And that's what I'm going to be about. And I'll cry out, make straight the paths for the Lord to the degree that he took on the political establishment with Herod and told Herod, it is wrong for you to take your brother's wife. It's wrong. It's adultery. One of those definitions of sexual immorality. It's wrong. And it ended up costing him his life. He was beheaded for what he did in regards to his stance on a sexual sin. But what kind of man would John the Baptist have been if he would have watered it down? If you water things down, people don't know the truth. And if people don't know the truth, they're not exposed to the possibility of God's Spirit convicting their hearts. And as I said last week, I'm an age of 57 years old where I, I know what I believe. I, I rest in that. Nothing that this world does around me is, is going to change in my heart what I know is a thus saith the Lord. I, I've lived a, enough life like some of you that you know to walk in the love and the light of God's path is better than the darkness of this world. You know it. We know what it is to be lost and then found. And you don't want to go back. We don't put our hands to the plow and go, oh, but I missed. No, we put our hands to the plow and move forward. But I do worry. And I know what the Bible says, I worry. I know Jesus is teaching. I preached it many times, but I do worry. I have concerns, however you want to say it. For the youth of this generation. Because if you grow up where God is not important and you don't have teaching in the home and help knowing how to walk on that narrow road and the narrow road being Jesus Christ. Then we go off into all kinds of error. And souls are lost. Beautiful souls created in the image of God are lost. So that's why this topic is so important. And it's why no matter where you find yourself in the spectrum of immorality of any kind, I believe, totally 100% believe that you are here today to hear this message at God's divine providence so that wherever you need to reset in your thinking, in your sensitivity, that God, through His Holy Spirit, will convict you to do that. So Romans 1, 2, and 3. 
There's parts that are written specifically addressing Greeks, Gentiles. There's parts that's written to specifically the Jewish people. And then there is a mixture of both. But in chapter 1, Paul begins to lay out sort of a journey through the ugliness of a human heart. And you start to see that in mankind, there's nothing really good in them except the image of God in which they're created in. It, 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 Paul labors at, at talking about this is our tendency, and that tendency is to be ungodly. That tendency is to be sinful and unrighteous. And he gets into chapter 3, and just so that the Jews can't think, well, we're the special people and, and that don't apply to us, he makes the blanket statement that we've all sinned. And we all fall short of God's glory. We all are in the same category. In chapter 2, he says, just because you're not doing this thing doesn't mean that you can point your finger at that person for doing that thing because you are likewise a sinner and where you struggle, they don't. And where you don't struggle, they do. We are all sinners. And then we have in verse 16 and 17, especially verse 17. And I want you to watch these words for same word could be because, therefore, because those are, are transitions in arguments and thoughts. And, and sometimes in the NIV, in certain texts, they will take those out. And that's why I'm becoming even more uh, happy with the English Standard Version Bible because they do not do that. And it helps follow the argument. But Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why would anybody be ashamed of the good news? The good news is that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. The good news is that there is redemption in His name. The good news is that we can find hope and salvation through repentance and coming to the Lord and receiving Him. The gospel also outlines things that God says turn away from. And some of those things in this world we live in, for people to take a stand on, might cause them embarrassment at the least if they're not ashamed of them. But Paul took this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For or because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? First to the Jew and then to the Greek. Now watch verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or faith to faith or from faith from first to last. Paul, after talking about not being ashamed of the good news and what it stands for and what it says about sinners in Jesus Christ, says that this righteousness, a right standing before God that we can't have on our own because we can't 
do enough right. We've got too many issues and broken things inside of us. But it is uncovered and opened up this right standing before God. And it's all about faith and the righteous will live by faith. See, having faith in Jesus is what the Christian is all about. Give me more faith. Increase my faith. Let me grow in faith. Is nothing more than saying, God, I want to walk closer to you. I want to trust you more. I want to hear from you. And I'm going to act on it. And you're going to impute your righteousness into my life. This word righteousness and the word revealed, we're going to see in verse 18 as we begin to get into the text. There's the word revealed. We see it compared against unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed. Probably the most accurate translation is uh, is being revealed. Now, you've got to think about this. This was 2,000 years ago. Paul is saying... God's wrath, his anger, is being revealed in this world. Which begs the question, how so? Do we see how his wrath is being revealed in this world? Well, first, I just want to talk about the word wrath. It's a word that literally means... To team, T-E-E-M, to team. If you've ever seen a bunch of fish moving around together that's in the ocean, they're teeming, the waters are teeming, the waters are churning, and it's a word that uh, is related to the idea of fruit and how the juices begin to grow and team inside. And it's a word that relates to what's going on internally and and so Paul is saying for or because of this righteousness of God that's being revealed which is by faith from first to last there is a wrath that is coming of, of God's that is teeming in God this e- internal movement against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of mankind who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, God has a violent passion against sin. Violent passion. Not just 2,000 years ago, but from the beginning of Adam and Eve's sin, there is this passion, this wrath, this judgment that comes out of that wrath, this, this death that comes out of this wrath, this degradation that comes out of his wrath in this world that we live in. And this word suppress, that God's truth is held down in our hearts and in our minds 
by our unrighteousness. And Paul develops the reality that the more calloused and less sensitive we are to what God desires from us, that there is this wide and broad road that by our nature, we run down. That's why Jesus talks about the narrow road and the small gate, the wide road and the large gate. He says very few enter through that narrow gate because that narrow gate is Him, Jesus. His teaching, His word, His truth, His gospel. And so wrath in the book of Romans is used in two ways. In present time, God's wrath in this world is being revealed. And we'll look at how in just a moment. But then Paul breaks off later in the book of Romans say the wrath of God is coming at the end of all things. The full wrath of God. And I hope at this point you begin to see how important it is, mom and dad, to love the Lord. To love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. You begin to see why these are the greatest commandments. Because when you love that way, you're going to raise and nurture your children to be exposed to the reality of God and who He is in His Word. If you don't love God, if you don't have a passion for the Lord, you're not going to raise them this way. Your Bibles will never be opened except if you happen to come to church, maybe. And your children will grow up in the home. And they simply won't know what God says on any subject. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Something here that's lost in most translations is literally the word is evident. For what can be known about God is evident to them because God has made it evident to them. But it's this little word within. If you was to read it literally for what can be known about God is evident within them. And what Paul is doing is teaching that that God has left his fingerprint not only on the outside world that he's created through his power and divine nature. But God has imprinted himself within us. We see that brought out in the book of Ecclesiastes, where God set eternity in the hearts of men. There is by nature... When it is not suppressed, 
by unrighteousness, there is by nature within mankind the, the view, the belief, the feeling, the essence of there's more to life than this world. There is eternity. I may not understand it. But God sets eternity in the hearts of His creation. So here, what can be known about God is put within them by God. And God has made it so evident. You know, my belief, and it's my personal belief, and this isn't a thus saith the Lord. I don't believe there is such a thing as someone who is born an atheist. I just don't. They may become atheistic. And they become atheistic because of the suppression of truth for whatever reasons. But here it says, as you stand back and look at the big picture of God's creation from the beginning of time, as Paul continues to develop this, God has made himself evident, plain, within and to people. And there's a reason he's in that. Romans 2, I just jump up to show you this, this line of thought from within what God does for us. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by, what's that word, nature, things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are what? Written on their hearts. Paul is making the argument that would be true for us. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you've been through. How difficult, how hard, how disappointed life has been for you. Or how much you have, how easy life has been. The bottom line for all of us We're without excuse. We're without excuse for not believing in God. We're without excuse for not acting on that belief in God. And I pray in my life and for you as well that wherever you are on that realm of faith to faith and your trust with the Lord, that you will trust Him more. And if you are hardened and calloused to know that God wants you to look to Him. And I believe we can see that by the words of the Apostle Paul. So we go back. Now we start to see the invisible attributes well, how, how do you see invisible attributes? And he goes, namely, to the outside world. His eternal power and God's divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. From the beginning, people looked around from Adam and Eve. Yes, God. None of this could happen. It didn't crawl out of the ocean. It had a beginning, and the beginning wasn't the Big Bang. The beginning was God. God created everything. 
And people perceived that since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. We can feel sorry for ourselves. God dealt a bad hand. God can't blame me for choosing to do what I've done. I'm just trying to find a little peace and joy in this life. want to get a little pleasure out of the world. Everybody is without excuse. As hard as that might be to hear, everybody is without excuse. No excuse will be good enough on that judgment day when you stand before the Lord. No excuse. And the only hope that any one of us has, anybody in this world has, is faith in Jesus Christ. It is in His name and His name alone that salvation is found. No other way by which anyone can be saved. Am I clear? That picture is a little stretched out, but it's from a friend out in Arizona. The heavens declare the glory of God. I want you all to stand with me. It may be hard for some of you to see this. Let's read this together. Because this passage of Psalm 19, the first six verses, really proclaim how God has used His creation to make Himself known. Let's read it together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. As we go out and look around, you know, we hear the expression, and you can be seated, stop and smell the roses. We're so busy, so distracted in life. Man, go out and look at a blade of grass. Go look at a dandelion. Go look at a snowflake. Go look at ice frozen on a tree. Look at flowers in the spring. There's so many things just to look at and go, this is incredible. The heavens pour forth speech and declare the reality of God. Don't take those things for granted. So back to verse 21 in Romans. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And you begin to see this this downward spiral. It's sort of this imagery that somebody does something that you think is wrong or they've sinned against you. You have a right to be mad at them. And you know, you know God has told you, forgive those who sin against you. 
But in the flesh, you have a right to be mad and angry. But you know, God says forgive. Or you're in a circumstance where someone has just irritated you, got on your nerves, and you're in a position of a little bit of authority and power, and and you can put the digs in, but God tells you, you know, he wants you to be merciful. Well, whenever you're not merciful, and whenever you're not forgiving, and you continue down that path of error, your heart begins to grow calloused. Your thinking begins to change. You, you start to grow dark. Isn't it interesting when you hear people that's really went down paths that uh, are so ungodly that I was in a dark place? Yeah. You're saying it naturally. What's the truth? Literally. There is an emptiness, futility in the way we begin to think. Because we've suppressed the truth with our ungodliness. We've pushed God away. We become the center of our universe. And we walk to our own beat, our own will, our own desire. And that is a recipe for failure. Failure. There it is. This word give thanks is where we get the word Eucharist. You you take the Lord's Supper. You remember the Lord. You, You set aside that time to remember what Jesus did on the cross. We do it on the first day of every week. We keep it before us. The bread symbolizing His body. The fruit of the vine symbolizing His blood that was shed to provide me forgiveness. That is the soul act that I remember. You remember each first day of the week. But because of a dark and foolish heart that is now empty in its way of thinking, depraved even, they don't honor God. They don't give thanks to God. God wants to be honored by you. God wants you to give Him thanks for who He is and what He has done for you. Christians should be, I think, some of the happiest, most thankful people to exist. Are you thankful to Him? Are you honoring Him in your daily lives? If you're not, then you might need to look at where you are in your walk because there may be some futility, some callousness that's growing. And I'd encourage you to turn away from that by the power of His Spirit that lives in you. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And you see this back and forth. People claiming one thing, but it's not true. 
They claimed to be wise. They became fools. What did they do? They exchanged. They traded down God for something less that they felt is worth more because it appeals to them in their flesh. And it happens because they're going to walk to their own will and desire. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible or the immortal, everlasting, from beginning to beginning of God for images resembling mortal man. So, birds, animals, and creeping things, they just, they traded it. It is not new to our current society. This is what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago as he stood back and looked at society. Sometimes we think, oh, it's, it's, it's worse than ever before. Well, it's pretty bad now, yes. And this sounds like Paul could just be preaching in real time as he looks around at our world, for sure. But it's always been bad, just varying maybe in degrees. It's always been bad. This is what it looks like. This is the human heart, the journey of a man's heart that's not looking to God. Not honoring God. Not giving thanks to God. God, I want to hear a word from you. What do you want from my life? How can I sacrifice my life on your altar? I'll give up anything to be pleasing to you. I want to please you. Therefore, there's the change. God gave them up. Now, Paul's going to use this language three times, this, this verb, God gave them up. And many years ago, there was a sermon written, how horrible it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, it was just a big, powerful sermon that went around the country. How horrible it is to fall into the hands of the living God. One of those fire and brimstone type, you know, that really shook you up. God could have used it, probably did use it. But I'll never forget sitting in my Greek class with Professor Dr. Floyd, who's no longer with us on this earth. And he said, you know, there's this sermon class, how horrible it is to fall into the hands of the living God. He says it seems like Paul really saying how horrible it is to fall out of the hands of the living God. Because that's what these words, this verb means. God gave them up. It is to have something in your hand And let it go. It is literally to unclasp your hands. It's that picture of a child that is rowdy, rambunctious, and fighting against a parent, but the parent's cuddling, trying to soothe, trying to love, trying to hold them back from something they think they want, something they think that will make them happy. And finally... Maybe even because of age and the child. You, 
a parent just has to let go. You can only hold on so long. This text, there it is. Read it in your Bibles. Therefore, God gave them up. He unclasped his hands for those that were embracing idolatry. Those that exchanged truth for a lie. Those who would worship created things other than the creator. Those who would look to stones, birds, stars, trees. The list just goes on and on. God at some point, and only God knows this point, unclasps his hands. And that's what, when you see how dark it is, it's why Romans 1.17 is so important to us. But, but now, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And we give thanks for the gospel. We're not ashamed because it's brought us salvation from the wrath of God and being let go of at some point, wherever that point is that only God knows. And it could be that the unclasping of hands is for a time so that the person can run down that path of error and get to the end of the rope and cry out to God. That's that's a possibility. It doesn't necessarily mean that in the unclasping of God's hands that he's just given up, but, but the probability is that if God lets a person go that's pursuing the worship of creatures that God's created versus God and who is holding down the truth and whose heart becomes dark and callous and mind becomes depraved, Habitually, you spin out of control. Because they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up. There it is again. To dishonorable passions. Now we move to the degrading of the body. We move to that impurity, that that part where we're not offering our bodies as spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. For this reason, God gave them up. Satan didn't give them up. They give themselves up. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. What is the due penalty? The due penalty is at some point God lets go. The due penalty is judgment. The due penalty is death ultimately. It may not be very popular in this world, and I don't know how popular it will be with you, but I know it's the God word. Homosexuality, lesbianism, 
It's sinful. Just as sinful as idolatry, just as sinful as fornication, it's sexually immoral to have relationships with someone that's not your spouse. It's sexually immoral to have relationships with same-sex individuals. There it is. It is a thus saith the Lord. And the reality is, it is a depraved way of thinking. Now, we have compassion on all people. And as I told you last week, I worked with an individual that was 100% in the trench. I'm a lesbian. I'm not changing. Can I come to church here? Yes, you can come to church here. But you've got to know what the essence of the belief is of this church family. And you've got to know that there's times that I preach on this. And I'm saying, come and grow with the Lord. But look to his word. I told you we met. Didn't talk after that first meeting for probably three to four months. And then longer than that, called back. Can we meet? Have a cup of coffee. When we had that discussion, I want you to know I left matter and hell at you. But God has changed my heart. I've seen what God's... Wor- this, listen, last week in First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 6, it, it doesn't matter what I necessarily say. You're not rejecting me. It's not like this is going to be personal to me. You're not rejecting. You're rejecting the Word of God. Not me, the Word of God. And when you start to see the reality of how serious all of this is, you know, you know people that are in this situation that you've never, ever talked to, tried to talk to, talked to in love, talked to in humble boldness, but talked to. to be a type of John the Baptist with a little easier words maybe to people you say how how can we get to this point maybe whenever you have a political government that cheers, cheers for the legislation passed of abortion of babies up to birth. We are there. It is evil. It is sinful. It doesn't value life. It's ungodly. It's unrighteous. They cheer, they clap, they applaud. And it's interesting, in our last verse that we'll look at here in just a moment, we see the word applaud. And they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I just would say to you, and we, we need to be prepared for it, There is a blessing, Jesus tells us, in suffering for our faith. There was a blessing for John the Baptist in giving up his life for his faith. There was a blessing when Peter crucified upside down for his faith. There is a blessing in martyring oneself for the Lord, standing your ground in the odds of great opposition. If you think you or for sure your kids will not undergo great opposition in the days ahead, you are fooling yourself. There will come a time, probably sooner than later, that there will be two reasons that a man would not be able to stand up and preach this sermon. One, he'd be put in jail. Two, his church members, hearts have grown so cold, they would oust him. It's coming. It's coming. I pray whether you're here, you're young or old, but especially to the young, that you could be a sage for God. A sage is someone that's, that's wise, mature. I just pray that you will lay down in your Bible or let God's Word rest in your life, that you... Fill your heart with His words. And you remain sensitive, loving, humbly bold, but that you take your stand in this world and allow God to use you in the days ahead when the rest of us are long gone and departed. That you will be that voice that cries out the name of God, that cries out, about faith from first to last that cries out to obedience that comes from faith, that you will be one that challenges, encourages people to choose God. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval. Go home and look the word up, approval, in your lexicon or your concord. They applaud. They put their hands together in approval to those who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. We are still in the season of God's grace. Forgiveness 
can still be found. I pray and encourage that you will be resolute, that you will be kind, and that you will go in the name and the Spirit of God Almighty and make your life sanctified. Each day, strive to please the Lord. That's why, again, I say every Sunday, stay close to the Lord and stay in His Word. May God be honored by the teaching and the preaching of this message. And may your hearts receive it in the spirit in which it's been proclaimed. Next week, we're going to move to a sermon series that I'm really excited about. uh, Restoration. Being restored and the beauty of what forgiveness brings in all of our lives. But may God be praised above all men. And may we not stand in opposition to our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we just pray for your spirit to move mightily in this church that we will be loving, merciful, kind, and gracious, that your word will be valued, that we will continue to believe that all scripture is God-breathed and all scripture must be proclaimed. We pray, Father, that you recenter us where we need to be recentered. We want to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Our spirits are willing so often, but our bodies are weak. We thank you for grace. And Lord, we thank you that you have received us wherever we've been when we came to you and said, I want Jesus in my life. Be with us now, Lord. Touch hearts. Move mightily on your people as we sing this wonderful old song. Let us stand together. If you need prayer, our prayer teams will be around the building.